Christianity is unique. Christianity is set apart from other religions for various reasons. But one in particular is the astonishing fact that God wants to have fellowship with his children. God wants to have fellowship with his people. That means he wants to have relationship with you. He wants to have relationship with me. God isn't distant and far away. But God is close and intimate with his children. That's why we pray. That's why prayer is so vitally important to the Christian life. A.B. Simpson says prayer is the link that connects us with God. Billy Graham once said prayer is simply a two-way conversation between you and God. Prayer is where we fellowship with our sovereign creator. Prayer is where we spend time with our Father. Prayer is where we meet with God. Prayer gives us opportunity to know our Father in a more intimate and personal way. So for the past few weeks, we have been talking about the depths of Christ's prayer as we have been listening to Christ pray to his Father. But we aren't alone because the disciples are there with him. They have had the unique experience of watching the Son talk to the Father. God, pray to God. What a moment where time must have just all slowed down as the disciples were in the midst of something special. It was a holy moment, if you may. And today we are nearing the end of this prayer by Jesus. As John 17, verses 1 through 5, Jesus prayed for himself. And then we saw in John 17, verses 6 through 19, where Jesus prayed for the disciples. And this morning... Christ prays for all the future believers. Christ prays for us this morning. And he continues to pray for us, amen? So let's open our Bibles to John 17, verses 20 through 23. John 17, verses 20 through 23. And I have um, entitled this message, Supernatural Community, the Church. So as we begin, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Holy Father, we thank you for this time that we can gather together as body of believers, as the church. We thank you that you have given us your spirit, that we can come together unified in Christ Jesus. May we not take that for granted. May we have close and intimate fellowship with one another, knowing that it reflects our love for you. Help us to be people who are dedicated to living our lives for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Well, John 17, 20, Jesus starts by saying this. I do not ask for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. 
So Jesus says, I am not only praying for the disciples, those that have walked with me for the last three years, I am also praying for those who will believe by the disciples' words. The question is, who has believed by the disciples' words? Who has believed by the disciples' teachings? Who has turned to Christ because of the apostles' words? Well, we know in the first century that the disciples spread the word, the message of Christ throughout the known world at that time through their words, right? With their teachings. But what about after the disciples died? I mean, Jesus says that the message will continue to spread specifically from the words of the disciples. How do disciples' words echo throughout the ages? Throughout one generation to the next? How does Peter, John, and Paul's words still speak to us this morning as we sit in this room? Well, this leads to point number one. We listen to the words of the disciples through the Bible. Simply, we listen to the words of the disciples through the Bible. Often in our evening devotionals with my family, we go through what is known as the catechisms. And I'm not talking about Roman Catholic catechisms, as catechisms just simply means a form of question and answers that teach Christian truths. So one catechism, I will ask my children and say, who wrote the Bible? And their answer, their response will be, chosen men who wrote by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That means the disciples didn't write the New Testament on a whim or in their own abilities, but they wrote supernaturally through the guidance, or as the catechism says, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which means God wrote his word perfectly through imperfect human vessels. So when we open our Bibles, we aren't just listening to the disciples' words. But God himself who spoke through these men. I wonder how often we are in our Bibles. How often we are studying, meditating, wrestling in Scripture. I wonder if we realize the amazing opportunity we have to just open the Bible and hear from God. So many people ask, oh, if I could just hear, get a word from God. Open the Bible, right? Open the Bible. How can I know God? How can I follow God? How can I know what to do in my marriage? How can I train my children? How can I raise them? How can I know my purpose? How can I live my life to please God? And over and over again, all these questions are clearly answered in God's inerrant, infallible, holy word. Amen? 
Ephesians 6.17 tells us how powerful the word of God is by saying this. The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. We see here that the Holy Spirit's main weapon is the word of God. That means when we read scripture, the Holy Spirit uses it like a dagger, like a sword, and penetrates or plunges deep within us and transforms us from the inside out. That's powerful. But that's why Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We get the picture here that the word of God is a weapon like no other weapon. The Holy Spirit transforms us as we read scripture, but it doesn't only change us. It changes those that we share God's word with as well. The Holy Spirit uses God's word to penetrate the hearts and minds of those that we're talking to. You must remember that the power isn't in our fine-sounding words or our polished presentations, but it's in the word of God, Amen. God's word transforms a sinner into a saint. You talk about modern day miracles. I don't think it gets better than raising a spiritually dead person to life. Well, let's go back to John 17, where we've already established that Jesus is praying for all believers, including us right now sitting in this room. But the question is this what will he say next? How will he pray for us to the Father? Will he ask the Father to protect us from the evil one, Satan? Will he ask the Father to help us in trials, to help us remain faithful when we suffer, to help us even have joy in those trials? Let's find out. Let's read our passage again. John 17, 20, and we'll move on to verse 21. And Jesus says this, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Verse 21, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus prays that the church will have unity. But the question is, what kind of unity is Christ talking about? Well, let's start by giving a few wrong or false views of biblical unity. False view number one. Biblical unity means complete conformity. False view number one says that biblical unity means we have complete conformity. Complete conformity means we all are the same in every way. There are no varying opinions or thoughts outside of what the group thinks and believes. This type of unity does not recognize individuality. They don't value individual abilities or gifts. Instead, they frown on anything outside the norm of what the leader believes. Their goal is to conform to a certain set of rules and regulations without any questions asked. 
the leader usually tells the group to follow his example to a T. This is what is known, church, as cults. This is what we see in cults today. But biblical unity is different than complete conformity. Although we do submit fully to Christ and we live in community with each other, and yet the individual is valued. 1 Corinthians 12, Paul compares the church community to the physical body and he shows how each part of the body is highly valued and how each part of the body has specific abilities that must be functioning properly for the whole body to be healthy. And similarly in the church, we are united in Christ and that means we grow in our church community and continue to develop in our own individual gifts and abilities to help serve Christ, to help serve the body of believers that we're in. So instead of everybody being the same, the church is diverse. It's colorful. It's made up of many different people with unique gifts and abilities, with varying talents and personalities that come together and make up what is known as the body of Christ. That's exciting. Well, the second wrong view of unity rebels against any sort of conformity. The only rule is you don't make any judgments on anyone. This view screams that doctrine or theology isn't important. False view number two says this. Biblical unity isn't based on believing God's word. False view number two says that biblical unity isn't based on believing God's word. It doesn't matter if you're Islamic or Catholic or Protestant or an environmentalist or even agnostic for that matter. The goal is to accept everyone regardless of that their belief system. They usually have slogans like this. It's not what you believe, but it's what you do. Or they say this, doctrine divides, but love unites. Or they say this, Christianity is not about religion, it's about relationship. And in a sense, there are some true, there's some truth to some of these slogans. But in reality, this view of unity is just as wrong as the complete conformity model that we just mentioned. I mean, let's just break down the slogan. Doctrine divides, but love unites. Let's start by asking, what's doctrine? What's theology? Well, doctrine is defined in my very biblically astute trusty apple dictionary as a set of beliefs taught by the church. So let's say we decided to live by the slogan, So we decided as a church that the doctrine or having a certain set of beliefs that come from the Bible aren't really that important, okay? It's not important that people turn to Christ as Lord and Savior. We don't think it's important that people believe that the Bible is God's word. We don't think it matters if people believe Christ rose from the grave or that Christ is even God. Our goal is to just get along with everyone and accept beliefs of everyone as right because that's supposedly the loving thing to do. The question is, is this loving? Is this how we love other people? Is it loving not to say a word when someone says Christ isn't the Son of God? Is it loving not to come alongside the family member who doesn't believe the Bible is God's word? Is it loving to stay silent when someone says, well, all religions, they sort of just lead to the same place. It doesn't matter what you believe. Let's say for a moment 
we work at Mayo Clinic in the research de department, and we have been doing a lot of studies and tests on cancer, and guess what we just happened? We just found the cure. That means people can finally be saved. People can be healed. This dreaded disease called cancer, where millions of people have died, now the, we can save people from death. I wonder if that would, if the loving thing would to do would be to hide this from the public, hide this cure. And of course, the answer is no, right? We'd want to give this out to everyone as fast as possible. And yet, in the name of unity or trying to get along with others, many are silent about the cure of the soul. They believe it is loving not to offend or judge others. So they watch people suffer without knowing Christ. They watch people make one bad decision after the next in the name of love. I'm here to tell you, church, that I think that's the opposite of love. I think that's cruelty. When we have the cure and we're not willing to say it, I think that's called cruelty. Jesus says this in Matthew 7, 13, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it by it are many. Jesus says that the majority of people are headed for hell. They will face the wrath of God for all eternity. So obviously, biblical unity can't begin by hiding God's clear truths from those that we love. So let's look back at what biblical unity really is. What is unity Jesus wants the, us to have as believers? Let's look back at John 17, 21 again to find out. Jesus says this, And they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, they, that they also may be in us. So let's stop there for a second. This leads to point number two. Our unity as believers should resemble the unity of the Trinity. Point number two says our unity as believers should resemble the unity of the Trinity. Think about that for a moment. The fellowship we have as a church body, the relationships that we have with one another, at the family church, should look like Christ's relationship to his Father. I mean, that's a humbling thought. It should cause us to possibly rethink our relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ, right? So what are some of the characteristics that we learn from the Trinity? Well, let's go back again to verse 21 where Jesus says that he prays that the believers may be one just as the Father and Son are one. And then Christ says something pretty phenomenal, something astonishing. He says this, as we as believers may also be in them. And to say it a little clearer, Jesus says this, that we, the believers, would literally be in the Father and the Son. So essentially, those that turn to Christ to repentance and faith become a part of the family of God, as God lives, resides inside of them now. But the question is, how does God actually live in us? How does he live in us? Well, John 17, 22 begins to spell it out for us. Jesus tells us by saying this, the glory 
that you have given me. Remember, he's talking to his father here. And Jesus says, the glory you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. So Jesus says he's given this glory that the father gave him to the believers, right? So what is the glory that Christ gave the children of God? And the answer is the Holy Spirit. We have been lifted up, raised to life by the power of the Holy Spirit. We can't be one with Christ without the Holy Spirit working in us. That's why 1 John 3.24 says, Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. God lives in his children by giving us the Holy Spirit. We have the third person of the Trinity residing, dwelling, living inside of us. And this leads to characteristic number one. Biblical unity starts with those who have a new identity. Biblical unity starts with those who have a new identity. That means our new identity isn't found in our past any longer, nor is it found in what we do. If we are an attorney or a painter or a stockbroker or even a pastor, this is not who we are. But again, what we do. Even if we are a husband or a wife or a father or a mother, this isn't who we are These are the roles God has us in that he has given us, but our roles don't define us either. Our identity is found in who we are, not what we do. And those of us in Christ are now children of God. That's our new identity. We are heirs to the throne of God. Our Father is King Jesus, right? And we're heirs to the throne. I don't want us to get a big head, but our Father is stronger, really stronger, bigger, greater, smarter than all the other fathers combined. I wish I knew this as a child because I would compare it to other fathers and it would be no contest, right? But biblical unity must start with a new identity as the Holy Spirit works through us to give us the ability to have supernatural unity. So we can rest assured that we aren't in this alone. Biblical unity isn't something we can just whip up on our own. We have the Holy Spirit guiding us. He's drawing us. He is the reason why we can have biblical unity in the first place. We know, church, that he is working in us. Amen? That's why Philippians 1.6 says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. Paul says our sanctification, our continued growth, depends more on Christ's faithfulness than our own faithfulness. And that happens because the Holy Spirit is working in us, living inside of us. But when we think of biblical unity, what is another important characteristic that we can learn from the Trinity? Well, we can see in the Trinity that they have a single-minded Crystal clear focus. They have a single purpose. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They don't have their own individual agendas, their own individual purposes and goals. And similarly, our biblical unity comes to those of us 
who follow this overarching goal, this overarching purpose of life for all mankind, which leads to characteristic number two. Biblical unity comes to those who live for God's glory. Biblical unity comes to those who live for God's glory. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says what? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. So we see here that our goal, our purpose, even the mundane moments of life like eating or drinking, these times shouldn't be mindless exercises, but opportunities to live for God's glory. I wonder what it would look like if we as believers in this room live daily for God's glory. What would our marriages our homes, our workplaces, and the entertainment that we decided to, to do. What would our church look like if we live for God's glory? I wonder how we would treat each other if we live for the glory of God. How committed to each other we would be. Well, Paul tells us in Philippians 2, 1 through 3, how this looks. He says this, So if there is any encouragement in Christ any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Paul says, be of the same mind, the same purpose as the community of Christ and live for God's glory. And verse 3 says, we don't live for self any longer, but instead, we put others above ourselves. That means as a group, we are called to put others' wants. That means as a group, we're called to put others' needs, others' desires, other people's hopes, other people's dreams and goals above our own. And this starts by putting our own agendas down and living for other people. And this is hard to live selflessly when we have the sinful nature raging in us, right? The flesh continuing to push us to indulge in our own self-centered agendas. But let me say with encouragement and joy as a pastor that I have seen many of you sacrifice your time. Put yourself last. Put the needs of others ahead of your own needs. I have seen many of you drop your own work or plans for the day and serve each other without a thought. This is a type of selflessness Paul is encouraging us to continue to foster. I know on many occasions, since my wife has been sick, we have had many of you come at a drop of a hat and help us and serve us. So Christ is at work. He is leading us by the power of the Holy Spirit at the family church. Amen? But living for God's glory by putting others ahead of ourselves isn't just this torturous exercise that we just have to grin and bear because we definitely benefit from it as well. The more we live for Christ, the more we serve others, the more we reap blessings from above. We begin to develop authentic and real relationship with others. Because they know we truly care. They see Christ living in us. And as we grow in fellowship, we share our deepest struggles 
We confess our sins to one another. We pray for each other as the Holy Spirit is working through all of us. Having relationships like this are not natural. Biblical unity is not of this world. It's supernatural. It's godlike. It isn't based on what sports teams we like or the common interests we have like fishing and golfing. Nor is biblical unity based on status, how rich or poor we are. But close, unified, biblical community is something altogether different. It's radical. It's otherworldly. It's spirit-led, which leads to point number three. Biblical unity is centered on a person. Point number three says that biblical unity is centered on a person. Biblical unity comes to those who have their hearts and minds submitted to Christ Jesus. That means our hearts and are aflamed. They are on fire for Christ. Our common bond, our close relationships, our unity is connected to who is most important to us. And of course, that's Christ Jesus. I wonder this morning if we know such biblical unity with other brothers and sisters in Christ. What about those people in our connect groups? I know some of us have close fellowship with others, but what about those of us who aren't close to those in connect group? What is holding us back from developing biblical community with others? What about discipleship? Does our community here at the family church foster spiritual growth with one another? I'd encourage us to get plugged into one-to-one discipleship ministry where we dive deep into God's word and at the same time foster real and authentic relationships with others. But the next question is, what's the outcome of such unified oneness? What's sort of the crescendo to such biblical unity. Let's go back to our passages. We're now in John 17, 23, where Jesus says, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So Jesus says this, biblical unity will get the world's attention. Supernatural unity will be a megaphone that screams to a lost and dying world that Christ is Lord and Savior. This leads to point number four. Biblical unity draws the attention of the world. Point number four says that biblical unity draws the attention of the world. Christ says that unity not only blesses us as believers, but unity is evangelistic in nature. Christ here does not specify how this unity testifies to the world that Jesus is Lord and Savior, but we can assume that authentic fellowship, real joy, sacrificial love shared amongst one another, vulnerable humility, opening ourselves up, sharing who we really are. True care will often show the world something that they are missing. Missing in their own relationships. But more than the world seeing the blessings of God, we know that unity is the conduit or one of the ways that Christ will use us to draw others to himself. 
I wonder as we think about biblical unity, if we know such authentic community this morning. Do the relationships you have here at the family church draw the world's attention? A better question. Does the world want relationships like the ones we have right now at the family church? Do we have close relationships that are founded and grounded in Christ? Are we open and honest with our struggles, with our fears, with even our sinful struggles in our fellowship with one another? Well, some of us might be thinking, honestly, I don't have this type of relationship with other Christians. We may be thinking our friendships are somewhat shallow, surface level at best, and definitely not centered on biblical unity, focused on glorifying God. Let me just give us some tips to grow in relationship with brothers and sisters in Christ. Tip number one, pray for the people God has placed in your life. Tip number one simply says just to pray for the people God has placed in your life. Often we are so focused on our own life that we don't truly think about anyone else. So when we begin to pray for others, our attention goes off of self and we begin to focus on other people. Praying for others will lead us to become more compassionate, more empathetic towards others. Plus our hearts will warm towards those that we are in relationship with. Tip number two. Get out of the nightly routines. Tip number two says get out of the nightly routines. Some of us come home from work and without even thinking we turn on news, possibly Fox News, and then watch it for the next four hours of our evening. I see wives looking at their husbands right now. And let me say, I don't mind a little Bill O'Reilly once in a while, right? But every night... Every night? I mean, there's only so many times we can hear Bill talk about the last Hillary scandal or the last outlandish remark by Trump, right? There's nothing wrong with watching TV on occasion. But when TV becomes the nightly routine and we aren't growing in relationships, then we know we have a problem. Hi, my name is Terry. I'm a TV-aholic, right? Right? So let's have our spouse hide the changer if we need to and begin to have people over, plan game nights, Bible study nights, prayer nights, and begin to have gospel-centered fellowship with one another. Tip number three, take advantage of what you already are doing. Take advantage of what you already are doing. Some of us think we are being faithful if we just show up to ministry. I came to connect group tonight, right? I came to communion service. I came to women's ministry. And that is good, of course, right? But we need to be participating. Some of us need to get out of our comfort zones and ask questions to others. Try to encourage someone. Share God's word with those that we come in contact with. But the point is that we need to be active. Take advantage of the opportunity that God gives us. Again, our purpose is to live for God's glory.
and get involved with other brothers and six sisters in Christ. Tip number four. Ask yourself, how can I serve others? Ask yourself, how can I serve others? In the relationships I have right now, how can I glorify God in them? How can I bless Luke? How can I help Casey? How can I serve Don, right? Brothers and sisters, let's not take for granted the relationships we have, the people God has placed in our lives. May we remember again that our Christian maturity, our biblical unity does not just depend on us though, right? But Christ is working in us and through us for his glory, amen? So I would encourage us this week to walk in faith and focus on deepening our relationships with one another. That's not just to you, that's to me as well. Knowing God is shaping us and other people the other person that we are in relationship with. We're so blessed. We have such an opportunity to have authentic community with like-minded believers who have the same purposes as goals as we do. What a joy it is to have biblical unity with others in what is known as the church. Let's, let me end by reading how Paul encourages the Roman church to have gospel-centered unity. Romans 12, 9 through 13 says this, Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never, never lack in zeal, but keep your spiritual further, fervor. Serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Holy Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word challenges us, Father. It wakes us up often from our stupor of, of sort of just cruising. We thank you not only for that, but we know that your word also encourages us. As we are walking with you, you give us more encouragement to continue to move forward. So we thank you for that, Father. We ask that you help us to have a community that is real, that's not fake. A community that's open and authentic with one another because of our love for Christ. And that love pours into our hearts and we pour ourselves out on other people. Help us to share our struggles, our wounds, our sins with each other. Confess our sins one to another and love you. We thank you for your word in Christ's name. Amen.